Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. staying in here and have a copy of the Bible if you'll join me in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're going to read verses 9 and 10 as we continue to work through this section verse by verse. Uh, But while you're turning and we're transitioning, um, this week, Lord willing, so long as nothing hinders their journey, the uh, Hickey family uh, will be uh, arriving in the States and uh, will be with us Uh, Logan will be preaching uh, next weekend, Saturday night and Sunday, teaching Sunday school as well. If you are uh, new to our church family, the Hickeys are a uh, beloved uh, part of our church family who about a year and a half ago uh, set out to Scotland uh, to do missions over there. And this is their first visit back. And so we're looking forward to uh, getting to see them again. And I'm looking forward to Logan preaching. So look forward to that next weekend. Let's turn our attention uh, to the scriptures. Romans chapter 12, we have begun studying through the section of verses 9 through 13, which is a paragraph unit there. We looked at the first sentence, let love be without hypocrisy. We'll pick up right after that, but I'll, I'll begin reading at the beginning of verse 9, and then we'll read verse 10 as well. So follow along with me, if you will. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, Lord, we ask that you will have mercy on us in this solemn time. We have opened your word. We are looking at what you have revealed from heaven. We want to see your truths We want to be changed by your truths. We need your help, oh God. We cannot breathe unless you give us grace. So let alone we cannot read and study your word unless you will give your spirit, unless you will give help. And so we ask for that, God. Have mercy on what happens in this time. We pray for our little ones in the next room that you care for them as they learn your word. Help me to preach in a way that is useful and clear. And I pray that all of us will worship as we bow before you, receiving your word. And so, Lord, all of your purposes you accomplish through it, we pray that you will convict, encourage, strengthen, but also challenge, make us holy, show us where we are in error, bring us to obedience, explain the world and reality and yourself to us, O God. Have mercy, we pray. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. When the Lord Jesus was on the earth in his ministry, one of the really important works that he did was those occasions when he cleansed the temple. He did this twice, once at the beginning of his earthly ministry and then once at the end during that week leading up to the cross. And the reason for it is that the the temple had been turned into something that it was not designed to be. 
you know, it's kind of appropriate. We've been reading through first Kings there in the construction of the temple. God designed the temple grounds to be the place on earth where Israel would gather for worship. It was to be a place of prayer, a place of solemnity. The Levites were gathered to lead the people in song. It was to be a place where they were able to draw near to God. But in the first century, it had become a place that was just a busy market. And the religious leaders were profiting. There was the unending noise of the animals, the buying and selling and the uh, sacrifices that, that were purchased there. And so there were these occasions when Jesus looked on this and he cleansed the temple. We're told Psalm 69 was fulfilled where it says, zeal for your house has consumed me. And Jesus fashioned a whip and stormed through the temple grounds Flipping over tables. I mean, just try to imagine it. Flipping over tables, hurling chairs, throwing the, the cashier's money around, screaming at the people, driving them out of the temple. He quoted Isaiah 56. He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he drove them out. Now, let me ask you, when Jesus did this, what emotions, passions, and affections were coursing through his heart? Jesus was filled with both love and hatred. He was filled with zeal. He was filled with passion. And there was love and there was hatred. In his heart, love for his father who deserves worship, who is to be feared and honored and glorified and obeyed and bowed before. But he was also filled with hatred, hatred for the way that worship had been corrupted, hatred for the way that God's will had been perverted into what it had become. There's a principle that is revealed here and throughout the scriptures there are things that God loves and there are things that God hates. And a major part of godliness is us adopting those ourselves. It's us loving what God loves and hating what God hates. Now, you know that you're living in a culture that wants to pretend, you've even heard this line used before, uh, God is only love. Well, not only is that not true, it's logically a contradiction. That is just not possible. When you meet those people in culture uh, who like to pretend and they will say, I, I, you know, I, I am only a person of love. That's all I do. I only love. Get them talking about some subjects they disagree with. You'll start to hear them use language like racist trash as they talk about certain individuals. What is coming out there is apparently they're not only love because that's not possible in a cursed world. If we lived on a planet that had no curse, no sin, no evil, no one was harmed, maybe it would be possible to be only love and hatred was only a theoretical kind of thing. But that's not the planet we live on. We live on a planet that is under the curse of God. It is filled with sin and violence, harm, evil, wickedness. And it is necessary for us to both love and 
hate. If you love babies, you have to hate abortion. If you love children, you have to hate abuse and molestation. If you love your wife, you have to hate adultery. The idea that a person could be only love without hating, it's, it's just impossible not to mention it is unrighteous to fail to love what is right and hate what is evil. And that is the basis for why we're told these, these next couple of exhortations that we are in the text here in verse 9. Now, if you've been with us, if you recall in verses 9 through 13, uh, there's a unit here. Uh, there are 13 exhortations, 13 instructions that we are given, and we're working our way through this list. We spent an entire week on the first one because it was a major one. We continue working through the list today. I'm intending to teach numbers two, three, and four uh, this morning. So let's get started. I'm going to take numbers two and three together. They are the last part of verse nine there. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, before we think specifically on um, the, those two exhortations and what specifically they mean, I, I think it'd be helpful for us to answer a question from the text. And here, here's the question. When you read the Bible, you should always be asking questions. Asking questions of the text helps us understand it. Here is a question from the text. I've been telling you for weeks now that the way that chapters 12, 13, 14, and the early part of 15 are laid out is this. We are to glorify God by fulfilling our responsibilities towards various individuals and groups of people. Chapter 12 began with our responsibility directly to God. Uh, then we entered a section that is, as Christians, if you are a follower of Christ, our responsibilities towards one another. Starting in verse 14, we move to our responsibilities towards our neighbor. And this continues into chapter 13, responsibilities towards government, etc., etc. So we're in a section here that is addressing responsibilities that we have to love and serve one another as followers of Christ. So if you are a Christian, you know, so in a, in a room this big, certainly not everybody is going to be a follower of Christ. But if you are a follower of Christ, you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that you must be saved from your sins and that Jesus is the only one who can do that. If you are looking to him and following him, we have responsibilities to love and serve other followers of Christ and then most especially the members of your local church family. But if that's the case... If that's what ties this section together, how does the end of verse nine fit into that? Abhor what is evil, hate evil, love good. Also notice some of the other instructions like uh, verse 11, be uh, fervent in spirit. Verse 12, persevere through tribulation. Those exhortations, at least on the surface, it doesn't seem like it has anything to do with how we love and serve one another. That sounds more along the lines of our personal responsibility directly to God. So how are we to understand this verse in its context in these exhortations? Well, there, there are a couple possibilities. You know, one possibility, it could be just as simple as maybe Paul just sprinkled in some random exhortations and that most of these are about loving and serving one another, but maybe there's some random ones there. That's possible. I don't think it's the case. The Bible is incredibly specific. 
You know, there, there are passages that, that emphasize a single letter of a single word in a single sentence. So I don't think Paul just got off track here and just sprinkled in some random ones. Here is what I believe ties all of this together. One of the ways, Christian, you love and serve your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the crucial ways you serve the body of Christ is by your personal obedience and godliness, even when it may not look like it directly impacts one another in the church family. Your personal obedience, your personal prayer life, it actually does affect one another. It has a strengthening, encouraging, influencing, inspiring kind of effect. And likewise, if a Christian falls in a moral failure, that also has an effect on the rest of the body. And I do believe that that is the, the implied understanding here. I believe that is what ties the text together. And, um, you know, this principle is taught throughout scripture. It's in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, 26, when one member suffers, all suffer. That's talking about the body of Christ, the family of the people of God. There's a verse we're going to look at today in 1 John 5 uh, that talks about how do we know when we love the brethren, when we love the people of God. It's when we obey God's commandments. The way that it is worded is I think that it is showing that when we are obeying God personally, we are also loving one another in that work. In the Old Testament, you may remember the account of the time when Achan, in the days of Joshua, when the nation of Israel was taking possession of the land of Canaan, Achan had sinned by taking some of the items that were under the ban. God said, you're not to take the gold. You're not, to, you're not doing what you do to get rich. You're doing this in obedience. Achan had taken some of the gold for himself. Israel went out in the next battle and they lost. And Joshua went to the Lord and he prayed and he asked, God, why, why did we lose? You told us you would be with us. You told us that you would help us. And God responded, there's sin in the camp. The sin of one affected the rest of the group. Well, if you think about a Christian, the Bible teaches that our obedience or disobedience, it really does affect everybody else. A moral failure by one member of the church family, like it does, it has this discouraging, disheartening kind of thing. When one member of the body weakens and is no longer following Christ with the kind of zeal that they once were, it has this effect of lowering kind of the morale and the pursuit of God in zeal amongst the whole group. But on the flip side, when one believer is on fire, think about the example there where we're told persevering through tribulation. In Philippians 1, Paul endured some real difficulty. It took great sacrifice for him to obey God. But he said that what happened had helped everybody else, had helped the rest of them to be emboldened that they wanted to follow the Lord in a greater kind of zeal because of that. So I believe that is what ties the text together in some of these exhortations that don't immediately seem to be about loving and serving one another. If you think I'm reading more into the passage than what's there, Okay, but this is what I'm convinced of. 
Um, so in these matters, this connects then with the instruction about hating evil and loving what is good. I think it is this principle. You are serving your brothers and sisters when we obey God in every one of these commands, instructions, and exhortations. We are to hate evil and love what is good. There are things that God loves, and then there are things that God hates. And as the people of God, we are to adopt those things for ourselves. We are to love what God loves. We are to hate what God hates. And Christian, this is one of the places where you need to be ready to defend the scriptures. Because you are living in a culture that wants to reject this part and wants to uh, make up an invented God, a, a God of their own imagination, who he loves everything I love. He approves of everything that I say that he should approve of. But instead, what scripture shows us is that uh, God is the one who gives the ultimate standard. We are the ones in error and we are to conform our loves to match God's. Very quickly, here are some places from scripture that address uh, God's hatred. Uh, I'm taking it as a given that we already understand there is much that God loves. We know some of those things. First John 4, 8, God is love. But what is often rejected is this part about there are things that God hates. So let me show some of those. Psalm 45, 7, that was the scripture reading this morning that uh, Nate read. Verse 7 there speaks of the Messiah. So this is the father speaking of his son. And he says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Part of God's delight in his son is that Jesus loves what is righteous and hates what is repugnant. Uh, Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, it says this, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Now, there are more than seven things that God hates, but that's kind of a poetic device that the book of Proverbs employs in several places. In Isaiah chapter one, God spoke to the nation of Israel and he said to them, you know, in essentially, your worship is a joke. You do not keep my law. You have distorted the worship that I gave you into whatever you want it to be. And then he says this, quote, your incense is an abomination to me. I cannot endure wickedness and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Something that we need to know about that verse is, all of those things that God pointed out and said he hated, those are things that God told them to do. But they were doing them in a way that dishonored God, like the day that Jesus cleansed the temple there. Their worship was a corrupted worship. And God says, I hate it. When you gather together for these feasts, I cannot endure it because you are despising me in your hearts and you are not coming in true worship. In Isaiah 61, 8, it says, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery in the burnt offering. And in another verse that you have to come to grips with, 
This actually comes up several times in the book of Psalms, but Psalms 5, 5 is one of the places where this is said. It says that the Lord hates those who do evil, who do violence. Your understanding of God and of reality has to have room for that, okay? So yes, God does have a creator's love and care for people, but the Bible also shows that he has a hatred for those who violently oppress the innocent, the Lord does have a uh, uh, abhorrence in his heart for them. And along these kinds of lines, you heard the word abomination come up and you know that that's a word that the Bible uses. You know, that's a, that's a word that the world loves to mock about the Bible, but it has a point. The word abomination refers to, to, to something that has intense hatred. And throughout the law, there are a number of things that God says are an abomination to him. So he, he told Israel, your incense, whenever you offer up these things that I told you to do, but you are doing it in a way that is despicable, it is an abomination to me. I hate it. And there are some of the sins listed out in the law of God that are said there. One of those Christian, you know, you, you need to know here we are. Uh, it's the month of June in the culture we live in. If you haven't noticed everywhere you turn, it's being thrown into our faces. But this is Pride Month. Pride Month where we are supposed to be celebrating um, this sexual perversion. Well, one of the things that God says in scripture that is an abomination to him are sexual perversions like this. And there are others beside this. And, and again, of course, these are the places where the world wants to hate the Bible and call it mean-spirited and such. Listen, God is the one who gives the ultimate standard. We are the ones who are messed up. We are to conform our understanding of what is right and wrong, what is beautiful and ugly, what is righteous and what is wicked based on the standard of the law of God that he gave us. We cannot make up whatever we want and say, God has to obey what I say. That is absurd. He is the ultimate standard. We are to conform our loves to match God's loves. Listen to some verses. Let me just catch my breath for a second. <laughs> Psalm 97, 10. Hate evil, you who love the Lord. Psalm 101, verse 3. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. Psalm 119, this, this whole theme comes up many times in Psalm 119. It's all about, uh, from your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. I love your law, O God. I hate what breaks your law. Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. We are to love the people and the things that God loves. And we are to hate what God hates. And you, you notice, it is a crucial thing that God is the one who gives this to us, that we understand reality. You, you and I, born under the curse, born with a sin nature, part of what is wrong is our thinking and what we love and how much we love things. There are things that we naturally love, but we should be hating them. 
because they are uh, ugly in the eyes of God. And he is the ultimate standard. There are things that we naturally do not see the glorious beauty of. And the word of God works to show us this thing that you don't see as wonderful. It is wonderful. There are things that are good and beautiful and glorious, and we fail to see them. But part of the work of God in the new birth is that he opens our eyes for the first time, not just to understand truth, but to see that a truth matters, that it is glorious. And so part of this process of God growing us is us learning what is good and beautiful and glorious and what is ugly and wicked and evil. And it is actually a major way we get life wrong, the Bible says, that we have distorted loves. Distorted loves. We love some things we shouldn't love. We really love things that we should only just mildly enjoy. And then there are things that we should be loving and we fail to see that they're worthy. All sin is either love excessive, love deficient, or love distorted. I cannot remember who said that, but somebody helpful and smart. But we are to love what is good and hate what is evil. Christian, we are to adopt this. We are also to show the world this. We are not to be embarrassed by what God loves and what God hates. We are not to be ashamed of it. We, we, we are not to, um, okay, so here, here's, here's one of these modern ones that you hear today. You hear this kind of excuse made and it's kind of a modern American Christian thing to just say things like, you know, we're just not going to talk about those um, hot button subjects that would get the world hating us. We just want the world to know what we're for. We don't need to talk about what we're against. You do realize that that's just cowardice clothed in religious sounding excuses. And it's basically calling God wrong that he gave a law where he explains, this is what you should love and this is what you should hate. We, we are to adopt this and we are not to be embarrassed by it. We're not to be ashamed by it. Part of our job as salt and light in this world is we are to show the world what is truly beautiful and what is truly abhorrent, what is truly ugly. There are ways we can do that that are more helpful than others, but we are to do it. And we are to speak in a way that is clear. Well, that was two and three. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Here is the fourth exhortation of the passage. It is be devoted to one another. If you look in verse 10 and look at the first part there, it says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now here we have another one of these one another exhortations from the New Testament. Um, we've already laid some of the groundwork for this, of understanding it, that when the New Testament uses this language of one another, um, it is referring to the love that one Christian has for another, and most especially in the local church family. I've pointed that out to you from John 13, where Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. This is how all men will know you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let me show you one more place in the New Testament that uh, addresses this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you want to turn over there. If not, I'm just going to read the passage to you. In 1 Thessalonians 5, if you look at the section there of verses 12 to 22, there's a section that just kind of rattles off commands, instructions, exhortations. It, it's kind of similar to Romans 12. You see some really helpful ones there. Rejoice 
uh, always pray without ceasing, etc. But find verse 15, watch this. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. What's the difference between the one another and the all people? The one another is believer to believer within the family of the body of Christ, especially. And then the all people refers to those who are outside of Christ. We have responsibilities to various groups. We have a responsibility to love our neighbor. We have a responsibility to love our enemy. We're getting to all of that in the text, but we have a responsibility to love one another in the body of Christ. And there are responsibilities that we have that are higher than the responsibilities we have towards neighbor and enemy, etc., because we have been made family by the blood of Christ. And so back in Romans 12, 10, what we're exhorted to here is devotion to one another in brotherly love. I'll focus on that part first, in brotherly love. There are different kinds of loves different loves that exist and within the family of God amongst the body of Christ, the love that we are to have towards one another is to be a love that is like the love that brothers and sisters in a bloodline family, uh, in an immediate household kind of family, uh, have towards one another are to have towards one another. We are to have this love for one another. Throughout the New Testament, we see this kind of instruction and command given over and over again. In the book of Acts, we see this love lived out in example, as the believers there would uh, care for the widows and the orphans. They would invite impoverished families of believers to come move in with them. Some were selling houses and land in, in order to uh, provide for the needy believers amongst them. It's one of the things that stood out to the culture around them that the Christians could, took care of one another. And this is the chief command that believers have towards one another. Love one another as I have loved you, Jesus said. There's a book of the Bible that has a lot to say on this subject. So let me take you there. Uh, for the book of 1 John, if you'll flip there with me. In 1 John, there are uh, several places where this comes up. I'll point out some of them to you. In 1 John chapter 2, I'll read some of them, make some comments. 1 John chapter 2, if you'll find verse 9, watch what it says there. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. A theme that comes up in 1 John over and over again is this. How do we know who the true people of God are? Because it is possible for someone to be an involved church member, a pastor, an evangelist, a missionary, and yet be unconverted, be not born again and not truly right with God, not forgiven of their sins. If that is possible, then how do I know if I'm truly 
in Christ and safe? And how do I know who the true people of God are? This comes up over and over again in the book of 1 John. And repeatedly the answer that is given is this, you will know them by their fruits. What comes out of their lives, the fruit, reveals what is in the roots. It's not that works save anybody, it is faith that saves, but those who are truly right with God, who have been forgiven of their sins, they are changed and they produce a lifestyle that shows it. And throughout the book of 1 John, we're told that love for the brethren, the household of God, the people of God, this is the greatest of those works that reveals this. Flip to chapter 3. First John 3, find verse 10. Let me read a little bit of a longer section here, down through verse 18. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother, okay, so brother here is referring to the fellow believer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Watch this. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Do you see how this is worded there? We are to love in deed and in truth and, and not merely in word. Sometimes people think that they love another person just because they say that they do. But it's also the case that sometimes people think they love another person because they don't have seething hatred in their hearts. They don't feel disgust for that other person. But actually the way the Bible explains it is this. We have that scenario there where, let's take Jim the American churchgoer. Jim the American churchgoer is contacted by uh, some of our believing friends down in Belize. And they contact Jim and they say, Jim, we are, we are out of food, out of money. There are no jobs. We can't even feed the baby. And Jim goes, man, I am so sorry, guys. I'm going to put you on our, our, our church's prayer list. Let me pray with you right now. And he prays. And then he hangs up the phone. And he maybe even feels some sympathy. The way that the Bible explains it is, Jim hates those believers. Now you might say, well, that's not fair. You know, Jim, Jim even felt some sympathy. Jim, uh, Jim doesn't feel disgust for them. That's applying a modern definition to a biblical word, an old word. We got to be careful that we're using biblical definitions for biblical words. You see what first John says there. How does the love of God abide in him? How does the love of God abide in that man? He has the ability to help and he will not do it you know, in a similar kind of way. We all know that there are folks who say that they love God, 
but they have no use for the church. What first John would say is that person does not love the people of God. The love of God does, the love of the people of God does not abide in him. He doesn't even want to come and be around those people. He has no, no use, not only for the worship of directly to God that takes place. He doesn't even want to be around the people. The love of God does not abide in him. We got to make sure that we're applying biblical definitions to these concepts here. Love for the people of God, which expresses itself in action, in service, and love happening as a verb, that is a distinguishing mark of the true people of God. We are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Let me point out just a couple more from 1 John, and then I'll get going. 1 John 4, look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Look at verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Chapter 5, first two verses there. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. Now coming back to Romans 12. If this is what it means to have brotherly love, what does it mean when we're told to be devoted to one another in brotherly love? It means, at least in part, that we don't quit. We don't quit on one another that our love has an element of commitment to one another. Because loving sinners in a cursed age means we must bear with one another, be patient with one another. It means that there are going to be offenses that happen. And we have to be able to let offenses roll off of our shoulders. We must be slow to anger. We must be quick to forgive. We must have an element that says, I'm sticking with this even when it is difficult. Because, you know, being a part of a church family is going to have those challenging times where you want to just leave or hold on to some bitterness in our hearts towards another person. A commitment to love one another says, I'm just not, I cannot allow myself to do that. Disgust for another believer is unacceptable. Bitterness that would remain in a heart, uh, holding on to a grudge, uh, towards another believer. It's just unacceptable. We have to let that stuff go. We have to rid our hearts of it. There has to be a softness towards one another. You don't got to be best friends with every believer and every church member, but there does have to be a way that we are not hardened towards any one other, but that at the very least, there is the brotherly affection of, I want good for my brother. We sometimes have tension, but I want good for him and I will pray for him. Love for the brethren is Christianity 101. It's a distinguishing mark. We've made this point several times now that we are in the body of Christ. We are to accept one another based on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how God accepts us. He doesn't accept us based on when you reach a certain level of good deeds or your worth, then I accept you we also are not to do the same thing towards one another. We accept one another on the basis of faith. 
We do not accept one another on the basis of loveliness or worthiness or if you are good enough and match up to something. We love one another. We ascribe love and honor to one another on the basis that we are sons and daughters of God together. Jesus spilt his blood for this brother, this sister. I am to love them. Jesus loves them. The way we treat and speak and act towards one another and even the way we think towards one another is to reflect this, a brotherly love and devotion to one another. You will find, Christian, that there are some that this is real easy to do this with, but that is not the real test of a church's love. A greater test of the church's love is how we love the least of these, using Jesus's language. A real test of a, a church's love is not just after a service, is there talking and fellowshipping? That is one test. That's a great thing for there to be, but that's not like the ultimate test. An even deeper test of a church's love is, is the church willing to invite others in, invite new members? So, so after a service, it is a wonderful thing. It always makes me happy. It makes me rejoice. The bustling, the laughter, the talking, the fellowshipping for you who leave early. Sometimes we are here for 90 minutes after the service. It is wonderful. That is a good thing. You need a circle of fellowship of like, those are my peeps. Those, those are the people that my, they refresh my soul. You need a group like that. But let me also tell you this. We also need to be looking for the ones who haven't found a group yet. We need to always be looking towards the door, not when the, the preacher's supposed to be done with the sermon. We need to be looking towards the door of the new visitors who come. New visitors come in the door. They should be told good morning 10, 12 times. But also new members, new believers when they come in. Be looking for those that haven't found the fellowship circles yet. Invite them into your circles. A, a greater test of a church's love is the willingness to love uh, the difficult, the least of these, the new, the outcast, the forgotten. These are who Jesus spent a great deal of his time pursuing. And we should as well be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And then last, let me say a word to you. If you have never turned to Christ to be saved, we started off talking about things that God loves and things that God hates. It is a reality that every single one of us, because we are sinners by nature, we are rebels by nature. That's what the Bible says, but surely you see it in your own heart as well. Because we are this, we all have engaged in things that God hates. In the eyes of God, our sin, every way that we break God's law it is, it's not just a small little, well, guys, from God. It is abhorrent. It is putrid. God uses really strong language in the Bible. Language so strong, it sometimes offends people. Strong language to discuss how much he hates sin and the breaking of his law. And he just clearly says, no one who has sin still on their record is going to be allowed into his kingdom of heaven. That is a problem because not only have you and I sinned, we do so every single day. 
But that's the whole reason why it is glorious that Jesus came and he went to the cross and he died to take the punishment of sin onto himself to pay the price of justice. You and I deserve death and we deserve that kind of death. Jesus took it in our place and then rose from the dead and now offers that any who will come to him to receive forgiveness will be cleansed. You can have that. You need that. This is the greatest need that you have. And God offers it freely. But you must believe on the Lord Jesus. You must turn in your heart to him in a kind of trust that submits to him and receives him. You embrace him as Lord, Savior, King, Messiah. And at the instant that you believe on him for the first time in that real way, at that moment, you will be forgiven of your sins. It's not a process of earning your way into heaven. God will grant you eternal life in one moment. You'll come into the light. You will receive eternal life in one moment. And then God works the change of growing us in obedience. But if you have never done this, this is your greatest need. Believe in the Lord Jesus and pray and ask him to save you. If you want to talk to somebody about that, nothing I'd rather do uh, than, than to have that conversation with you. I'll be at the back if you want to catch me before you leave. But with that, let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we love you and thank you. We are grateful that you have revealed what is beautiful and what is ugly. We are grateful that you have sent Christ. We thank you that you have extended love to us and pursued us. Help us, God, to live this. Help us, God, to now do the harder work of leaving these doors and obeying what we have seen your word teach us. I pray for our church family. I pray that we will be a people that loves, cares, and serves one another. I pray that you will increase the love of the brethren amongst one another here. And if there is any that has not yet been born again, I pray that you will bring this about. Help us, God, as we dismiss. We love you, Lord. Pray this through Christ. Amen. You are dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.